Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are, of course, in a series on Psalms. We began last week looking at last week's Psalm 32, a Psalm of forgiveness. I chose that one because it uh, connected well with the Lord's Supper. Today we are looking at Psalm 5, a Psalm of suffering. So as you can see, I'm not going in any particular order. I'm just choosing various Psalms for the specific Sundays that we are looking at at them. And we said last week that one of the reasons we love the Psalms is because of the raw emotions that we find there. The authors simply express their feelings and their thoughts, sometimes with no regard, it seems, to whether or not they should actually say it. I mean, especially to God. I mean, sometimes we read some things in the Psalms that we would be afraid to say to God even though we know that God knows our hearts. The psalmists have no such qualms. They pour out their troubles to God. And because of that, because of their honesty with God, we can read along and know that while our troubles might be different from theirs, our heart cries are often the same. We certainly have a host of issues in our own day that we could pour out to God. Issues both personal and national. I mean, the events of 2020 have caused all kinds of difficult emotions. Anxiety, depression, loneliness, anger, frustration, just to name a few of the ones that we are regularly experiencing. And keep in mind, these feelings that are flowing from the events are simply added to whatever else we were dealing with prior to all of this. It's not as if we had no troubles prior to the pandemic. And so all of the issues of 2020 are simply piled on to what we've already experienced, leaving many people feeling alone and weighted down with great burdens, especially given the fact that it is very difficult to connect with other people during this time or to find community with what's going on. And so we often come to the place that we think we're the only ones going through these struggles. And we don't know what to do with our feelings. We don't know who to share our emotions with. And so more times than not, we keep them bottled up to ourselves. But what we see in the Psalms is the authors of these Psalms pouring out their hearts to God, which is the proper place and the proper person to, in fact, pour our hearts out to. Instead of blaming others or lashing out, which seems to be the preferred response, especially online, instead of complaining to others, which is often our default response, instead of turning to destructive habits or rebellion, we should turn to God. And that's what we see the psalmist doing, especially in this one we are looking at this morning. The setting for this psalm is the going up to worship. We will see that from verse 7. But it is certainly not restricted to this setting. 
It is what is labeled as a lament song, which means the writer is pouring out his heart to God for divine deliverance from his trouble and his pain, which in this case also includes his enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but poetry is often hard to figure out. And it's certainly often hard to get a structure to. In other words, taking a poem, which is what these psalms are, and making a structured sermon out of them is often somewhat difficult because you don't know where to divide the various lines. And there are a number of ideas as to how many stanzas this particular psalm has. I'm going to go with the ones who say there are five stanzas here. And so we will have five points, each stanza being an individual point. You see again that our heading says that this is a psalm of David. And he certainly had plenty of opportunities. If you know David's life, he had plenty of opportunities to need deliverance from his enemies. He had plenty of chances to pour out his heart to God because of troubles that were going on in his life. But unlike last week, you remember last week we had sort of an extensive background to the writing of the psalm. In this case, we do not. We do not know the context or the setting of why this particular psalm was written. Again, there's a lot of options, but we don't know the specific context behind its writing. Or even if there needs to be one. I mean, who's to say that David had to have a specific event in mind every time he wrote a psalm? Most believe that David's enemies are lying about him or falsely accusing him of something. All of this comes from verse 6, but even that is not totally certain. But we certainly don't need the specific context in order to apply this to our own lives. You see, your suffering and David's, and by the way, all of us suffer in some way or another. You're not going to get through life suffering free. So your suffering and David's might be different but the feelings and emotions that spring from that suffering are likely going to be very similar. So this morning from Psalm 5, we are looking at a psalm of suffering. Verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I pray, prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who, know, that those who love your name may exalt in you. 
For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. As you can see in verse 1, this psalm begins with a cry. David is pouring his heart out to God. This cry of a servant to his master reminds us that in the midst of suffering, and again, all of us are going to experience that, in the midst of suffering, we ought to offer morning prayers. That's what we see David doing here. And that is a good reminder to us. And the, the trick here is that oftentimes in the midst of suffering is when we least want to pour out our hearts. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to pray. And we may not even feel like praying. But it is in these times that we must be reminded to offer our morning prayers. And you see that this is not a casual prayer. David is not merely offering these prayers or going through a routine because it's part of his to-do list or his spiritual checklist. This is not something he just wants to make sure he accomplishes so that he can feel like he can go on with the rest of his day with God's blessing. The situation is dire. And as a result, his prayer is urgent and his emotions are deep. Again, I want to ask you, do we follow that example? Do we first and foremost, especially in times of suffering and pain, do we pour our, out our hearts to God and, and expect that he's going to listen and even answer? You see, David is addressing the right person. Verse 2, he has a relationship with God. He says, you are my king and my God. And this is a relationship that has been developed over time. Here's the problem with a lot of folks. That is, they don't develop a relationship with God during the normal course of their daily life. And then when they do face trouble, when they do come up upon a time of suffering, they don't know what to say. They don't know how to pour out their heart to God in prayer because they've not been a developing a relationship with God over all of that time. But David has been doing that. He's called a man after God's own heart. He's been walking with the Lord. And as a result, he can cry out to God during this time of pain because he has this relationship. Now, you also uh, sense the element of persistence here in this prayer. David is not going to give up. I mean, where else can he turn? This is a living example of the parable Jesus told about the persistent widow. You remember that story? It's a parable about a woman who comes to a widow looking for justice. And he tries to, to, to get her off. He doesn't want to deal with her. And yet she keeps coming and she keeps coming. And finally the parable says, eventually that judge, who's an unjust judge, is going to get up and give her justice because she wearies him. He's tired of her. And the point is not that God is unjust. Certainly not. God is a just judge. And so if God, who is just, is going to hear our prayers and he is going to answer them. Maybe not in our time schedule, but certainly eventually. And so there is the sense of persistence here in prayer. And because this trouble is on his mind, he begins his day with God. We talk about this a lot. You've heard it before. We talk about the need for Christians to have a daily quiet time. We call it a quiet time because it's a time for us to get away from everything else and spend time with the Lord. Now, this doesn't sound like a quiet time because David is crying out. He is groaning. But it's the same sort of sense of him spending time with God. We call it daily as a reminder that this is not something we do merely on Sundays. 
This is not something we do occasionally. This is something that is needed for every believer every day of our lives. And David, in this instance, is doing it in the morning, which is my preferred schedule. However, I will say to you that I think there's some leeway here. I don't think you're less spiritual if you don't do it in the morning. I think some of this is a matter of preference. Some of this is a matter of personality and schedules. I prefer mornings because I'm a morning person. And I prefer mornings because that's what Jesus did. So if you don't want to do it on my schedule, then uh, take it up with Jesus. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, being Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And I don't take that scripture to mean that that was a once-in-his-lifetime kind of thing. I take it to mean that that was his daily routine because he desired communion with the Father. Now, I was just kidding about doing it when Jesus did it. I really do believe as long as we do it, that's the important thing. But I like it in the morning because I believe it sets the tone for the day and doesn't allow the business or uh, the infringements upon our schedule to get us off track. But if you're a night person and you're disciplined enough to weed out those other things, I don't think there's anything wrong with ending the day in that manner. In fact, we see it in the Psalms. If you look over real quickly to chapter 6, Psalm 6, verse 6, you will see, I am weary with my mourning or moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Uh, so there is a back and forth here in some of these psalms with a, with a morning uh, crying out to God and sometimes an evening crying out to God. Actually, I think that's the ideal if you want to be honest. I think ideally we ought to begin and end our day with the Lord. And I have to admit we tend to end our day with television instead. Perhaps this is why uh, Charles Spurgeon called his classic devotional Mornings and Evenings. And he has for every day not one devotion but two because of that pattern of life of beginning the day with the Lord and ending the day with the Lord. So when we face times of suffering, we need to offer our morning or evening prayers. Secondly, we see in the second stanza that we need to guard against rebellion. This is in verses 4 through 6. Now, I realize that this may not be the obvious conclusion when you read these verses. On first glance, what we find here is David anchoring his prayer in the character of God, which is certainly a good thing to do. And I mentioned at the outset that many conclude from verse 6 that David's enemies are lying and falsely accusing him of something. But it's also possible to interpret verse 6 in a different manner. It is possible to interpret verse 6 as words of enticement or a temptation rather than accusatory terms. And if that be the case, then David is reminding himself of God's character and nature so that he will not be tempted to join them in their rebellion. Plus, it's certainly not a bad thing. Indeed, it is a needed thing that when we read in the Scripture of God's hatred of evil, it serves as a warning to us not to fall prey to it. So even as he describes his enemies as those who are evil and therefore God is opposed to them, that's a reminder that we don't want to be in their shoes. So when we read statements about evil people not dwelling with God or not standing before him, it's a reminder that that is not the position that we want to be in. Instead, we want to be in the presence of God. And the only way for us to have that is not to be on the path of rebellion. 
but instead be on the path of submission and service that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 1, there are some similarities here between Psalm 5 and Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is that classic uh, psalm that has two, two parts, two paths. Blessed is the man, and then it goes on to describe the man who walks in righteousness. And then halfway through that psalm, it says, but the wicked are not so. And then it describes the wicked. So it's a comparison of a blessed or righteous life versus a wicked or rebellious life. Many believe that Psalm 1 is actually uh, looking forward to the righteous man, that is, Jesus Christ. That we can't be righteous on our own, but we must be righteous through him. But certainly we know that the only way to be in the presence of God is through the righteousness of Christ. And that is what we want. Now, it is indeed tempting during times of suffering to rebel. We start asking the hard questions. And those hard questions like this, why is God allowing this? Or if this is what faithful service to God brings, why should I be faithful in my service? We tend to sound like a spoiled child who rebels when they don't get their way. And all of us have either done this or at least been tempted in that direction, which is why David is reminding us of God's character and his nature. I say this often, but it bears repeating. Our belief in God must come from his revealed word. And by that I mean we must come to understand the nature and character of God as he has revealed himself to us and then interpret as best we can our experiences and our situation from that standpoint. It gets to be a very dangerous thing when we do the opposite. That is, when we look at our lives, our circumstances, and we come to conclusions about God on the basis of what we see in our lives. That's backwards. We need to make sure we know what the Bible says about God. And then again, as best we can, we interpret our circumstances through that lens and not vice versa. The consistence, the consensus today seems to be that God doesn't really care how we live. That God is a God who loves us no matter what. And he simply looks the other way because... He is a God of love who wants to bless people if he is a God who exists at all. But I mean, look at the terminology in this stanza. God does not delight in wickedness. Since God is holy, he hates sin. Indeed, it says that he hates all evildoers. So much for love the sinner and hate the sin. It doesn't say that, does it? It says God hates evildoers. He abhors them. That's a strong term who are deceitful and bloodthirsty. Now you say, yes, you might be quick to add, even in the church, that's the Old Testament God. The Old Testament God was more angry. The Old Testament God was more vengeful. And you're reading from the Old Testament, but when we get to the New Testament, well, then God changes somehow. Well, here's an example of what I just said a moment ago. We need to get our understanding of God from God who has revealed himself to us. And what does God say about himself? I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God who does not change. So there is not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. There is not a vengeful Old Testament God and a loving New Testament God. There is one God. And so when we read these statements, and they are indeed strong statements, it is a reminder to us that we must guard against rebellion. We must guard against going the same way. 
So why the discrepancy then? Why does there seem to be a discrepancy between our experience and God's revelation of himself? I mean, if God really hates evil, let's just be honest, if God really hates evil, why isn't he doing anything about it? Why is there so much evil when God says he hates evil and evildoers? Well, there's a couple of conclusions. We could conclude that God doesn't care. So he allows evil to continue. We could conclude that God is not powerful enough to do anything about it. He does hate evil, but for some reason he can't stop it, and so he doesn't. Or does God allow evil for a time for his purpose, even if we don't understand what those purposes are? And it's a short time comparatively. I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 this past week in a funeral. And it said there, Paul speaking, this slight momentary affliction. Now, if you know Paul's life, there were not slight momentary afflictions in his life. He had a lot of turmoil. He had a lot of trouble for years. And yet he could write, this slight momentary affliction cannot be compared to what lies ahead. Because from the perspective of eternity, he could say those words. So keep in mind that while we look around and we think evil is triumphing, and we're going to talk about this again, because this is a regular theme in the Psalms. We're not the first to think these things. It is a regular theme in the Psalms to look and say, why do the righteous suffer and the evil seem to prosper? Over and over again, that question is posed in the Psalms. And in a short period of time in this life, it does seem to be the case sometimes. But we need to be reminded that God is a God of justice, and he will set everything right eventually. Not in your time or mine, maybe not even in this life, but primarily in the next. But we must trust that he has a purpose even for the things that he allows in our lives and guard against rebellion. Stanza number three reminds us to continue to worship. This is verses seven and eight. We are to continue to worship. Again, there is the there is the real temptation to run away from worship because we don't feel like it. But in the midst of our suffering, we need to continue to worship. Now, I am not making a statement or comment about someone's personal choice during this COVID pandemic. I am not trying to say that you should be attending in person. I am not saying that at all. However, I will wade into the murky waters and say that my fear is that online worship is going to become so convenient for folks that even after this virus is gone, they will be tempted to continue that. In fact, I've even seen some predictions that say as many as 30% of churchgoers will never return once this is over with. And I hope that's a huge overstatement. In fact, the last couple of weeks, we've been at that 70% attendance in person number. So hopefully that number of 30% never coming back is wrong. I was talking to a fellow pastor this week who, who they've not started in-person services yet or indoors. They're meeting outside. He's not in Knoxville. And he was asking me about some of the protocols we're using and such. And he said he continually reminds his people, they're meeting outdoors and streaming, of course, and he continues to remind his people that there is going to come a day that you're going to have to turn your pajama pants in for real pants and come back to church. And that's all I'm saying at this point. For now, I'm grateful whether you're worshiping with us on Facebook Live 
or whether you're here in person. That's not the point I'm making when I say continue in worship. My point is simply to highlight that David's commitment is to worship in spite of the appearance that evil is prospering. His reaction is not to rebel along with the others, but his reaction is to worship. And this is where scholars get the idea that this is a psalm that would have been used as people gathered for worship. Now, one could make the case that worship is both corporate and personal, both gathered and private. But here we are clearly talking about corporate or gathered worship. And by the way, these two should never be put in competition with one another. Those who say, well, I can worship better by myself than I can with the church. I don't need the church because my worship in private is much more effective. If that's your thought, you do not understand corporate worship nor the church that gathers to do it. Because these two things are not in competition. We are to worship privately, and we are also to worship corporately. Now, we know that David is writing this before the temple is built. After all, his son builds the temple after his death. So it may be that he's applying this terminology to the tabernacle or the idea that the temple represents the presence and protection of God, which is why once the temple was built, it was such a significant building. Or you may notice the word toward there. Perhaps that's significant. That is, if you can't go to the temple, in his case, because it's not built yet, you worship toward the temple, offering your prayers and worship that way. And we see this in the book of Daniel. Remember, that's what Daniel did when he was in Babylon. Every day he would look toward Jerusalem as he knelt in prayer and worship. It is what other religions still continue to practice. And again, we see this two lives uh, contrast, these two ways of life, the life of the wicked, whom God does not like and won't hear, and as a result, they will face consequences, and the life of the worshiper, who continues to praise God and is ultimately blessed as a result. Now, notice verse 7, that David comes to worship not in his own merit. This is not a prayer of David's good deeds. He doesn't recount how good he's been that week, and therefore he is worthy of coming to worship. He says in verse 7, he comes due to the abundance of your steadfast love or mercy. And then David prays that God would continue to lead him in righteousness. Kind of reminds us of that more famous psalm of David, Psalm 23. Lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And it's again a reminder of the series that we just finished on the Holy Spirit. You know, it seems like after I finished the Holy Spirit series and we talked about the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in our life and how that works, it's coming up everywhere else we're looking. Because here we see it again. David is praying that God would lead him in paths of righteousness rather than succumbing to rebellion. So one of the best ways to stand against our enemies is to stay strong in the Lord. And we stay strong in the Lord through both private and corporate worship, continuing to worship even during times of suffering. It is sad in the Christian church and as a minister to witness people who walk away from the Lord during times of suffering rather than continuing to worship. You remember Job's testimony? When his three friends were basically telling him to do that? Job, look at how God's treating you. Why don't you just forsake God? Why don't you just recant and leave, rebel? And Job says, even if he slays me, I will hope in him. That's worship. Even in the midst of all the suffering, and Job's name is synonymous with suffering. Job says, I'm going to continue to worship. 
The fourth stanza reminds us to remember God's justice. You may recognize verse 9, probably not from this psalm, but instead from Romans chapter 3, where Paul quotes it concerning the sinfulness of man. Verse 10 continues uh, the, the prayer request. It's actually the second request that's specific. The first is verse 8. How then can we correlate this psalm that prays for God to act against his enemies with Jesus' words that we are to love our enemies and pray for them? Again, is this a, a contradiction between Old Testament and New Testament? These imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament that basically ask God to act against the enemies, but then we hear Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for them? Well, understand that the Old Testament never said, hate your enemies. Now, we do know that there were some folks who came to Jesus and said that. They came to Jesus and said, Jesus, the Old Testament says, hate your enemy, but you're saying love. That was a misinterpretation of the Old Testament, something folks are still very good at. Ultimately, we are to pray for our enemies that they might repent and not face the judgment of God. That should be our desire. Our desire should be that they experience the mercy of God just like we have rather than the justice of God. However, if they refuse to repent, then the justice of God is appropriate, which is what David is requesting in this stanza. This is a prayer about judgment upon the wicked because they have rebelled against God. This is not a personal issue against David. At least that's not primary. I'm not saying they weren't personally his enemies. They seem to be. But that's not the main reason he's praying for the justice of God. Look at verse 10. David is pleading for their punishment because they have rebelled against God. Not because of what they personally done against him. He had such a high view of God that he wanted to see sin punished in those who would dare to defy such a God. Our thoughts, on the other hand, are usually more personal. Can you believe what they did to me? God, will you judge them for what they did to me? God, will you get them for the way they're treating me? But that's not what David is saying here. David is saying they have rebelled against you. Again, I want to remind you that God is a God of justice. We look all around us and we see injustice or unjustice. And we wonder why isn't God acting? Just know that God is a God of justice who will act in his time. That time may not be in our lifetime. It may not be in this world. It may be a judgment in the next world where everything will be set right. We need to remember that this life is merely a prelude for the next. Our last stanza tells us to rejoice in refuge. This is similar to what we looked at last week. It is similar to what we've already heard sung this morning. That is, instead of rebelling against God, we are to run to God and in God find our refuge. Again, we see a contrast. He moves on to talk about those who love God rather than those who are rebelling against God. Take refuge calls to mind Jesus' terminology in wanting to gather the people under his wings. You remember how he said that? Oh, I've longed, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings. That's a symbol and a picture of protection and security. We should rejoice under the protection of such a loving God rather than rebel against him. We flee to the security that we find in him in the face of our enemies. And in the end, it is favorable, favorable to live such a righteous life. 
That is not to say that this is a promise that all will go well with you. It is not to say that this is a promise of peace and prosperity, but there is a promise of protection. Nothing can get to us that God doesn't allow for his purposes, even if we don't understand those purposes. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even suffering or death. Nothing can take away our salvation, for God is our provider and protector. Now, part of the reason God allows suffering, and I don't have an an extensive answer to all of this. I could give you bits and pieces, and we will as we look at some of the other Psalms. But part of the reason God allows suffering is so that we might grow to maturity through it. And having grown in maturity, that we might be able to instruct others. You remember, that's what David said he was going to do in Psalm 51, and it is what David did in Psalm 32. He learned from his mistakes, and he taught others. Likewise, we are to learn from our suffering and instruct others. So I hope David's suffering has helped you this morning. I hope it has shown you that you are not alone, that all of God's children suffer in some measure. You might feel disconnected during COVID. You might feel lonely and separated from everybody else, maybe even including God. But that is not the truth. As a believer, you are not separated from God. And as part of the body of God, you are not separated from the church of God. God is in the midst of our sufferings. Don't ever get the mistaken idea that suffering separates you from God. I hope you've seen that God can and does hear our prayers in the midst of our suffering. And that includes times when we don't even know what to say. Paul, in that great Romans chapter 8, says that there are times when we are so troubled, so burdened, that we don't even know the words to say. We cannot even express ourselves. And it is in those times that the Holy Spirit of God cries out or groans on our behalf. I hope we've seen this morning what a privilege it is to come to God through Jesus at any time, but especially during the midst of suffering and pain. And when we do that, we will always find a mercy seat that is easily accessible. Finally, I hope we've made the connection and seen that our sufferings are not worthy to be compared either with the glory that will be revealed to us nor the sufferings that Jesus endured for us. We are spiritually alive this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually alive this morning because of the suffering that Jesus endured for you and for me, paving the way for our salvation. So in our times of suffering and pain, may we be reminded of what he endured for us, that we might have not only abundant life here, but eternal life to come. Let me pray. Father, I know some personally and some unknown, but I know there are people in this church, in this sanctuary, watching online, who are suffering. The suffering seems to have been compounded during these these times of turmoil and unrest. And many people are filled with the various emotions that we talked about at the beginning and don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to react. They don't know who to go to. Lord, would you lead us with David? 
to cry out to you, to pour out our groanings before you, knowing that you hear our prayers and in your time and according to your will, you will answer. I know we get frustrated that our prayers are not immediately answered. I know we want suffering to end immediately. I know we want justice to overcome injustice right away. I know we want good to triumph over evil today, not tomorrow. And yet you don't always act in those ways. And while we don't understand that, help us to trust it. Help us to trust that you are a loving God who indeed, as David said, hates evil and even those who who do it. And may we not desire first and foremost for them to face your judgment, but may we plead for their salvation so that they, like us, might experience your mercy. But if they refuse, then your justice is just. Lord, help us to learn from the sufferings of David so that we can cope and endure and overcome our own sufferings, and then that we might be able to teach others likewise. We pray this in the name of the one who suffered so greatly for us, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing our...